Welcome to the All In Podcast, where we dive into the mindset, habits, and stories behind inspiring and passionate individuals who know what it takes to go all in, as well as discuss topics such as mental health, sports, wellness, and much more. This week, we have Bella's Talk Day coming up, which if you didn't know, is an annual campaign here in Canada around mental health awareness and fundraising. I personally think it has really moved the needle when it comes to creating awareness and engagement around mental health, the stigma, and sparking conversation, of course. I remember when it first started, seeing people in my school who had never talked about mental health posting, you know, thousands of times a day with the hashtag Bell Let's Talk to try to raise money because back then it was a certain amount of money would go for each text message sent on the network as well as tweet, hashtag use, um, social media post. Now it's more of a campaign where Bell has actually committed a certain amount of funds towards over 1,400 organizations that they've partnered with over the years, um, large and small ones in communities nationwide, which I think is really, really cool because they're not just, you know, funding research or funding, you know, one certain charity. They're actually doing the work to like go and see different organizations in different communities like hospitals, universities, um, providing mental health support to students, uh, service providers, care, research organizations. I really appreciate that. Um, And I just think it has really been one of the most impactful campaigns around mental health up here in Canada that I think has kind of spread into uh, other campaigns worldwide. For me personally, I know that Bell Let's Talk played a pivotal role in my own mental health. Consciously, it's played a huge role in the fact that, you know, every year when it was Bell Let's Talk Day, there would spark that conversation with teammates. You know, I would be in hotel rooms with my teammates and, you know, writing a post about mental health and, and being feeling a little bit safer to open up on that day um, and seeing them, you know, do the same, seeing uh, teammates, coaches, different people, you know, post with the hashtag. That made me feel a lot better about the things that I was personally going through and a little bit safer to be open and vulnerable. And then I think even uh, unconsciously, you know, the ripple effects of that, of, you know, maybe my, my doctor, you know, doctors I've seen, coaches I've worked with and other people having been impacted by the campaign and that in turn, um, allowing them to be more receptive when I did talk about my health and opened up about those types of things. You know, I, I think there's still such a stigma about opening up about mental health. People worry if, you know, they might be perceived as attention seeking or what people might judge them or maybe think that they're mentally weak for going through some of these things. And then having that that one day where a lot of people would come forward and open up about their mental health and kind of feel safe to do so and to share their story. It was so important to me in the early days of what I was going through with my mental health, with depression and anxiety um, while I was competing in snowboarding and then when I was coming out of it. And so it's definitely a day that I always am really conscious of trying to take part of. And it is really cool to see so many people being open and vulnerable and coming forward on that day. When you're going through mental health issues, knowing that you're not alone is such a huge piece to feeling safe to come forward and speak about it, as well as just, you know, heal in a way. Um, And so I think that's a big part of the Bella's Talk Day especially when they first started, and this is something they continue to this day, but they partner with celebrities and athletes um, and different people that you might not have known have gone through different mental health issues, whether it's mental illness, uh, mental health things, and having them come forward and share, you can see that ripple effect. You can see the commercials on TV and the reactions of your family who might have had a stigma about it and then, you know, see that perception change and spark that conversation and bring it back into, you know, the school, the community, the family aspect. I think that has started a ripple effect that, you know, cannot go understated. 
I know on the podcast, mental health is a main topic that we've talked about, whether it's with past guests, uh, solo episodes about mental health, um, episodes where I've shared my mental health journey. Um, I personally think it's just so important, especially um, when it comes to the athlete and sports space, showing that it's okay not to be okay. And that just because someone might be a high performing athlete, maybe on the outside, they're living this dream that other people want to achieve or aspire to, doesn't mean that they're immune from mental health issues. And like I, this really came to light to me over the past couple years, uh, watching the Olympics when, you know, we see athletes like Simone Biles come forward with um, pulling out of an event because of things she was going through mentally. And then all these people, you know, kind of hating on her in the comments, leaving negative comments, leaving comments that just come from a lack of education and awareness um, and their own biases and things that they might be going through. And so that's why I think these types of campaigns really, really do make a difference. And this is why I think, you know, folks focusing and, and talking about mental health so openly is such an important piece to the puzzle of mental health support and changing how we deal with mental health uh, in this country and worldwide. So I've heard some feedback from different listeners that you guys have been enjoying some of these uh, episodes where I've compiled some of the different clips from past guests, and I've been having a lot of fun putting them together. So I want to continue that because I really wanted to do an episode on mental health. Uh, and since I've shared my story before, since I share my story so much on, on social media as well, I wanted to, you know, put the highlight on the different guests that have came on and been vulnerable with sharing their story and giving tips. So um, I've taken some clips from various episodes on some different topics within mental health, within the mental health conversation. And I hope it inspires you to go and listen to those full episodes from those people to really hear their full story, um, as well as provide some actionable tips and advice if you're struggling with mental health, if you're looking to support someone else with mental health, if you're looking to just gain more education and awareness, I hope this can really help. So let's dive into it. And without further ado, let's go all in. So the first clip comes from Jay Tuft, who's a mental performance coach. And here he talks a little bit about the identity piece. I think this is relatable to people beyond sports. And it also provides some great advice if you're a parent, a coach, or someone looking to support someone in building an identity that doesn't just revolve around one single goal or one single thing that they do. You know, I think there's a lot of people that, and, and there's even, you know, from very early on in my career, when I was down at the training center, I met a lot of athletes that operated under that assumption of this has to be the entirety of who I am. This has to be, I have to fulfill this. I have to do this. And how do I say this? There's that can get you that mindset that might even that mindset that you had that mindset, you know, cause there's some people that may, may be listening to this being like, yeah, well, Natalie had that mindset and maybe it wasn't terribly productive at the time, but look how far it got you. Right. Here's the thing. There's a very hard ceiling, right? There is a ceiling on how much you will able, you're able to achieve now for Natalie. Thank goodness that got her all the way to, you know, is a team Canada snowboarder. Fantastic. There's a lot of other people that they find that ceiling of the amount of pressure that they face much, much lower. And I'm here to tell you that that ceiling is poured in concrete. There is there is no breaking through that ceiling on, you know, that cap on your potential, on your ability to perform when you're faced with that much pressure. Because as you allude to, let's say somebody does make it, what keeps them going? 
you know, if the entirety of their existence as an athlete was, I need to prove people wrong, I need to do this, I need to do that, because then I will find worth in myself. And as you alluded to, let's say that somebody somehow finds a way to win, win an Olympic gold or do really well. And then there's not this sense of relief because there's no space for that relief to exist within the person. And I think that's a really important thing for people to recognize is that when you operate with that mindset, when you operate through the lens of what I do is everything that defines who I am, there's really no space for when you finally achieve because you're not going to allow yourself to achieve because if there's nothing more, because quite simply, if there's nothing more for you to achieve, then what are you? And that's a big, 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 heavy question. And that's where, again, you know, you even alluded to the struggle at times of transitioning out of the sport or getting away from it, or, you know, even, even the individual who did achieve what, what, everybody, what the majority of of people in your sport want to achieve of going to the Olympics, what's next. And sometimes we've, sometimes we realize that there isn't anything next. And then there's this hole, then there's this gap of, well, how am I going to define my worth now? Yeah. Wow. No, I, I absolutely love that. So how can we perform or how can an athlete or anybody who's dealing with this psychological pressure, how can they perform their best in the face of it or just flip flip that switch and flip that mindset? Yeah. So the first thing, again, if we're going to start with the mindset is we need to be able to find some balance. Now, this might be like in your situation or like in the situation with my athlete where he got injured, it might be forced. We might be forced to find some balance here because we just can't get away from our sport. But especially for, you know, obviously I work with a lot of like younger developing athletes and for them specifically, it's a lot of work with the parents because, Kids are very impressionable. And when a young athlete, you know, a 12, 13, 14, 15 year old, and let's say they're, you know, I've had some who are incredibly good at baseball. Well, now all of a sudden, you know, the parent, because they see their athletically gifted child and the parent, not, not out of any malicious intent or anything like that. They just want to support the child to the best of their ability. So what do they do? Right. They, they get them on two or three different travel teams and they go to all the showcases and they get, you know, two or three private coaches. But what ends up happening or or the subtextually what's happening there subconsciously for the athlete is now all of a sudden, it's very easy for this young athlete to start to see that or start to think that whether it's true or not, that the really the biggest piece of value that I have to my parents is this thing that I'm doing in baseball, because it's what we talk about. It's what we spend all of our time doing. It's what we travel to go do. It's what, you know, when it's what all my friends are are tied up in baseball. Some of the most impactful people in my life are my coaches. They're also my baseball coaches. When grandpa and grandma come over for Thanksgiving dinner, they're asking me about baseball. So it's mm-hmm. very easy all of a sudden for this young person to just, because there's a bit of conditioning going on here, to just start to fall into this mindset of my worth to the people around me is based on this thing that I do. So with younger athletes specifically, it's way more about the work with the parents and how do we balance that out? How can we become acutely aware of like, if you think about it, like a, like a grade school pie chart, right? Think about the grade school pie chart with parents. I'd often ask like, 
you know, write down the percentage of time that you spend talking to thinking about your child as this role is this role of an athlete. And then I also want you to write down what percentage of time do you remind them that they're a child, that they're your son or daughter, that they're, that they're somebody's friend, that they're probably a sibling, how much, you know, that, how much praise do you give for these other roles versus how much praise do you give your child for you know, their role as an athlete or the success that they have as an athlete versus the success that they have as a student, a brother, a friend, you know, somebody's, you know, grandchild, whatever it may be. And I think what parents, you know, parents' eyes kind of, you know, get nice and big, like a cartoon character, because they're like, oh, shoot, we've really been conveying this message of sports and athletics. Um, Not and again, I, I always operate under the assumption with parents is that they're, they're doing what they what they're doing because they're trying to keep their child safe, keep their in in this case, keep their child safe from failure, failure. And so they're gonna do everything that they can to keep their child from failing. So they're gonna throw every bit of resources that they can at the child. But at times, though, this can kind of be a self-fulfilling prophecy because now the child feels just this tremendous amount of pressure and now they're not able to perform. And then now they're looking around the world around them wondering, well, what are people going to think of me if I can't do this thing or be as good at this thing as I was before? So that's more on like the younger athlete side is a lot more of it has to do with the work with parents. Now, for older individuals, such as my pro, you know, women's soccer player, it's truly like it's some big, heavy conversations. Like it truly is what's driving this where is it, where does this come from? What are some of the, you know, if we can get into what are some of the underlying thought patterns, what are some of the emotions that lie underneath this? And, and almost always it connects to this sense of this sense of shame and shame is really nothing more than the fear of being unworthy. And that's, those are hard. Those are big, heavy conversations. And <clears throat> at times that can lead to a lot of tears, but there can kind of be this sort of, you know, not to sound super floofy here, but like there can be this sort of emotional kind of awakening, if that's what you want to call it, or this, this, this heightened state of emotional awareness around, wow, this is what's really been driving this for a long time. And then with the, with the older individuals, it truly is a matter of, obviously you're a professional, you need to work hard, you need to continue doing what you're doing. But when it's time to stop being in this case, a soccer player, what is it that you're doing? What is it that you're thinking about? Are you investing in other areas of your life? Are you investing in relationships outside of soccer? And it's ironic, because this obviously isn't just contained to high level sport. There are individuals listening to this that, you know, at one time in their life, they may have gotten too wrapped up in their career. Right. They may have had a very demanding job. And because that job is so demanding and maybe there's maybe it's a very prestigious job, doctor, lawyer, whatever it may be, people see them as such. And so now what they do is become so much of who they are. And maybe we neglect some of the other relationships that quite literally we don't, you know, whether they want to admit it or not, they don't hold as valuable, not because they don't think that those people are important, but because they don't perceive that the world around them finds value in them for those other relationships. So, you know, the classic example is, you know, career driven man or career driven woman, right? They're driven by their career because they perceive that the world around them values them for their career. Maybe not so much as a, you know, father or father or mother or as a spouse or as somebody's friend or whatever it may be. So it's something that applies certainly to high level athletes and performers. But you know, the the message that I have to a lot of people is that in, in some way, shape or form, we're all performers, we're all trying to 
we're all trying to achieve. We're all trying to move ourselves from the version of, from, from the version that we are to the version of ourselves that we want to be. Um, and we, we, we certainly should be at the same time striving to do that in the healthiest possible way and making that thing, the entirety of, of the value that we have to the world there's going to be a hard cap on the amount of success or happiness or fulfillment that really anybody has in their life. Next up, we have professional hockey player, Reagan Rust. Definitely go check out her Instagram at Reagan Rust. If you want to see more or learn more about her story through mental health as an athlete and just as a person, she shares really openly and provides a lot of different resources to other people on how they can get help for mental health. And I just think everything she's doing in that space is so great and so important. And here she shares three tips on things that she does to help improve her mental health. I go for walks. I actually dog sit, so I go for walks with that dog. (laughs) Yeah, he brings my mood up a lot. So I'm thankful for him. Um, It's a Rhodesian Ridgeback, by the way. I'll just put that out there. His name (laughs) is Aster. He's super sweet. (laughs) And then um, I call my friends often. Yeah, that helps me a lot just to remind me that like I have people in my corner. Um, And so I've been catching up with a lot of people this week because it's been really dark here and I really need that extra boost of light. (laughs) Um, And then like just meditating and writing that really helps me too. So I will meditate in the mornings and it like helps clear my head and the writings help me put my thoughts on to paper so I don't have to have it up in my head. Next up, we have Olympian and former NHLer Corey Hirsch, who suffers from OCD. He's also an author, and in his book, he shares a lot of the story of what he's gone through with his mental health. He hosts a podcast called Blindsided on the Players' Tribune, where he interviews top athletes like Kevin Love, Bubba Watson, and in this clip, he talks about how important it is to see some of these people open up um, and break down the stigma of mental health. We're trying to educate people and teach them and make them and let them know, like, hey, you know, um, Bubba Watson has gone to get help. I've gone to get help. Uh, Emerson Griffin's gone to get help. Kevin Love's gone to get help. We'll get, and you can too. And Kevin Love's an NBA All Star. Bubba Watson is one of the best. Like these are the elite of the elite, you know. So don't tell me that they're weak or that you wouldn't want them. You know, I I take Kevin Love on my basketball team every day if I'm trying to win a championship. This guy had a panic attack in front of twenty thousand people. Um, so you know, we need. That's where it's people that that are keeping the stigma alive and it's the most ridiculous thing ever next up we have author and former collegiate athlete kim carducci talking about the self-awareness piece i think the biggest thing is just being aware of what you're thinking and doing in your environment because if you are actively competing and you're still intense and critical and perfectionist and all these things that's okay. You know, just have awareness that you're doing that and that that is helping you be successful. But if you're not in that environment, just, you know, just literally take a step back and have the awareness and the understanding that those characteristics are not helping you anymore. And I mean, to get into specifics, like I laid this out in my book too. practice things like acceptance, practice things like I, you know, I'm going to do my best in whatever I set out to do, not more than my best, not any less than my best. And I'm not going to refute my performance because if I can do my best, what do I have to argue? Um, And just also practicing self-compassion. That's a huge one. Like learning to embrace the average human parts of of you outside of the high profile accomplishment athlete person. Uh, That's a tough one for athletes. They may not want to embrace that part of themselves, but... (laughs) 
that's, you know, that is the way to practice self-love and self-compassion is to take care of the human being first before the athlete. So I think just growing awareness, just, you know, listening to conversations like this or other podcasts or books or other things, um, I think that's helpful. Now, a topic that's especially important to me is mental health and action sports. Um, this is something that I really suffered from uh, dealing with the fear and the past trauma of really serious injuries and how that would affect you when you're dropping in and going to do the sport again. Um, you know, action sports obviously have a very high risk on your well-being, physical and mental. And in this clip, one of my past teammates and Olympian Jenna Blasman talks a little bit about this. And it's awesome now that Canada Snowboard has a psychologist, sports psychologist, because, oh my God, Christy helped me so much. Cause yeah, those injuries are like, like you're, you're going, I don't know how much, maybe like 60, like miles per hour, I think, or whatever down this freaking scaffolding jump into this ramp that shoots you up. And, and if you have like a traumatic injury, if you've had a crash, yeah, that's hard to just dive into again because, you know, your your life is kind of at risk. Like concussions yeah. are a big thing with that sport. Oh, 100%. And it's not even like you're scared to do the same jump or the same trick again. It's also that like that plays in your head. And like, for example, you're taking off off the jump and you get like this like flashback of it happening or whatever. You're, mm -hmm. you're, you're The same thing could happen very easily again. I know like that's happened to me, right? Like you go to drop into a jump and you're thinking, Oh, remember last time when I caught my heel edge? Well, if all you're thinking about is catching your heel edge again, like what's going to happen, you're going to catch your heel edge again. And it's yeah. like so hard to work through those, those patterns. The pressure can really, um, it can get to you. And, and yeah, you fall, you fall out of love with the sport because it's almost like you can, you become an outsider looking at, the, you kind of like wake up to the fact that holy shit, like you are throwing yourself off these huge jumps and one, one, one little fraction of a second can really mess you up if you are not focused and in the flow. And that's can be some, yeah, some detrimental um, injuries for sure. In this next clip, we have multi-time guest, former collegiate athlete and flow coach, Corey Camp. And here he talks about, you know, flipping the switch and that balance of mental health as an athlete with that mental toughness piece and how vulnerability really is a superpower. Yeah. I mean, that vulnerability has to be there and our ability to be vulnerable, which is kind of an oxymoron for athletes, right? Like we never want to show our cards to our competitors and say like, oh, like this is what I'm dealing with. This is my weak spot, weak points, because then they're going to take advantage of that. And I've definitely done that to other competitors in my career where it's like, oh, I identified like if I got out fast, even though that wasn't originally my game plan, but I just knew if I got out fast, I would get in their head and they would yeah. give up. Like, awesome. I'm going to play to that. And more times than not, it would work. But I think you're right. Being vulnerable, having those conversations in it's got to be so in a container where that little fear or any notion that your playing time is going to be affected by it or your livelihood for a lot of people, especially at the national team and pro level, right? Like if you're not playing, your livelihood's affected. You're not making money and that's going to cause more financial burden and stress and probably amplify these feelings that you're feeling already because you're, you're not able to fully let go of them. Cause you know, back, back in the back of your head, you're like, okay, 
I can't share all of this because if mm -hmm. I do, this might happen. But it's the most freeing thing if we're able to lean into that, be vulnerable and find a space that allows that. It's like if you're going to try to jump, I mean, you know it, if you do high jumps and all this stuff, like if you try to go jump and you leave one toe on the ground, you're not going to be jumping very high. You know what I mean? But if you jump with every ounce of your body, it's amazing how much higher you can soar. That's exactly what vulnerability does is it allows you to fully commit to letting go of that emotion and freeing your body in doing so. Next up, we have Reed Meyer talking about the mental health journey he went through as a collegiate athlete. I was not quite a blue chip guy, but I was a highly recruited person. I was 6'4", left-handed pitcher, could, could throw multiple pitches for strikes, um, wasn't the fastest thrower in the world or pitcher in the world, but I had enough checkboxes that, that I was intriguing to, to a, a good number of folks down here in the States from, from a baseball perspective. And so my recruiting actually started my sophomore year. I started getting, you know, the questionnaires and the emails and the camp invites. And it is amazing how inundated you can get with those things, regardless of sort of where you are in the recruiting hierarchy. It's amazing the type of data that these schools have and, and what they're able to sort of push out to you in, in any one of these sports. And so I kind of jumped into that world my sophomore year, and it was a bit of a whirlwind for me all through my, my graduation. I kind of got to see the highs and the lows of going to different colleges and meeting different coaches and seeing what it was like for them to recruit me with an expectation, what it was like for me to be recruited, whether I did or did not hit those expectations by the time it came time to sign papers and actually give offers and things like that. Mm. Um, so I actually signed on with a junior college uh, initially. It was closer to my home, smaller area. My pitching coach was actually the the coach at that at that junior college. And for me, it seemed like a good fit. I was, I was young for my age. I was graduating at 17 instead of 18. I felt like it was going to be a smaller environment. I was going to be able to develop a little bit more. And so that's what I was going to do. And the fall of my senior year, I had been recruited by Dartmouth uh, University, which is up in the Northeast in the States. And uh, thought I was going to go there, was going to use athletics to sort of get me to a higher academic school. And August rolls around my senior year and the coach calls me up and says, hey, by the way, we've had your grades since May when you were done with school. Now, all of a sudden, we don't think you can get in. We're going to go do something else. Whether that was athletic, whether that was academic, one can only speculate. Um, but at the end of the day, it was August of my senior year and I had no options. So tried to, to get on with, with this junior college, was able to walk on, super excited about it. November rolls around and I get an offer from Texas Tech University. Went to a, went to a showcase, had a, pretty good, had a pretty good weekend. They offered me a scholarship. Um, after speaking with my parents, after speaking with some other folks that I sort of trusted in my circle, I, I decided to sign with Texas Tech. But when I tell you I signed with tears in my eyes, that, that would be true. And, and I think a lot of it came from anxiety because in my gut, I knew that I was doing it because other people told me I should, or I was doing it because it sort of filled the expectations of what was expected of me and not necessarily what felt right in the moment. Um, and that would come back to backfire on me a little bit whenever I did, in fact, get to get to tech. Um, and I will say it has nothing to do with the school as a whole. I think Texas Tech is a wonderful university. I think that the people there that I met were fantastic. I still have, you know, long time, lifelong friends from that experience. 
But for me, I, I wasn't prepared to go to West Texas four hours away from where I lived. I wasn't prepared to take the classes that I took. I didn't even know what major I had until I showed up. They just handed me classes and were like, you're an exercise science major. So I didn't, I hadn't even thought of that. And so three weeks into this process, I'm calling my mom in my dorm going, what did I, why did I do this? What happened? This is terrible. And I just don't really know how to handle it. Um, so fast forward to winter semester of my freshman year. And I get home and my sister, who has sort of always been my best friend ever since I was growing up, uh, pulled me aside and was like, hey, something's wrong with you. Like, this is not, you're not the same person. You're a shell of who you were. You know, I was gone. I had lost a ton of weight and I didn't really have weight to give at that time in my life. Um, and so I ended up going to therapy on, on her recommendation and, and spoke with him. And turns out that sort of through my first experience in college, I had gotten an acute case of depression. Um, that was sort of brought on by an extreme sense of social anxiety that I was getting when I was at school. And because of sort of the environment that I was put in from an athletic standpoint, I had actually um, gotten a fun little case of body dysmorphia as well that had led to an eating disorder. So I had lost 60 pounds since I left home in August. So from August to December, I had lost 60 pounds whilst trying to eat as much as I possibly could and work out more than I ever had before because I was with a division one program. Um, and so that to me was a bit of a wake up call of like, Hey, this isn't working. Like this is not going the way that I wanted it to. And so I finished out my spring semester, um, just kind of for lack of a better term, to be honest with you, fight through it. I mean, I, I traveled a little bit with the team. I didn't really make a lot of the conference rosters, um, but I wasn't in a good place mentally or physically. And so I can't really blame them for that. Um, and as I was leaving Lubbock, I called my mom and was like, I'm not going back there. I'm not doing that anymore. And so ended up going to a junior college, uh, Weatherford College, right next to where, where I lived. It was a little bit closer to home. It was smaller. It was more manageable. My pitching coach was there. Um, and I went there for a year as a walk-on and had a great fall semester. Um, in, in, in junior college for baseball, you play a fall season and you play a spring season as opposed to just a spring. So my fall season, I crushed it. I don't think I gave up. One earned run that whole time uh, was great. was a weekend starter. Just everything was going well. Um, talking to schools, went on quite a few official visits. And at the end of all of it, um, didn't really have a, a strong idea. Didn't really have a strong emphasis on any school that I was talking to. And so I kind of took it into the spring spring season and started to, to work there. Was still keeping in, in touch with coaches and things like that. And uh, ended up sitting the bench my spring semester. Um, my coach called me in between fall and spring and said, Hey, do you care more about baseball or do you care more about just everything else? And I didn't really know how to answer that question to be hundred percent honest with you. So I was probably more transparent than I should have been and told him, you know, I love baseball and I want to play, but I'm, I'm not a pro guy. I'm, that's not what I'm going to do in my life. So I have to focus on the academics. I have to focus on these other things. I have to set myself up to go to the next step of my four-year degree. And I went from pitching every week, starting every week into the fall to getting a total of, I believe it was 11 innings over the course of the spring season or something like that. And I think six or seven of them came in like our last two games or something like that. Um, so for me, to be honest, that was just sort of a hit on me of like, man, I'm, I'm burned out. Like, this is not what I want to do. This doesn't make me happy. I'm, this was a sport. It was supposed to be fun. It's not fun. Um, and so I called all the coaches that had offered me, uh, scholarships to go to the next level. And I turned all of them down. So I'm, I'm done playing. I'm hanging them up. I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. I got mixed reviews from different coaches. Some of them thought I was joking. Some of them respected the idea. Some of them threatened me and told me if that, if I ended up on another team somewhere that they would 
contact the coach and whatever else. And so whole litany of responses on that. But uh, I ended up going to the University of Texas right over here by uh, in-state, sort of our big in-state school. And uh, it was the first time that I felt relief when I decided that I wasn't going to go play sports anywhere else, which was not at all the uh, emotion that I expected to have sort of effectively ending my career. Um, So that was kind of, yeah, that was the very long-winded version of sort of what took me from starting in college sports all the way until I retired after my, my sophomore year in college. Up next, we have another clip from Kim Carducci, who had a clip that we featured a little bit earlier in this episode. And here she talks about that injury piece and the mental health effects of that. Yeah, so I think the biggest thing that's upsetting and frustrating about being injured is the uncertainty, right? There's uncertainty with how your body's going to heal. What's the timeline? Are you going to be back on the field in two weeks or is it going to take a year? Um, do you need surgery? How are, how are your teammates perceiving you? How is your coach perceiving you? But like, what's going to happen? Like all of these questions create so much uncertainty and that is really, really debilitating for humans. Like we would rather know for certain if a bad thing is going to happen than to be stuck with the uncertainty, right? Like the example I use is we'd rather know the hurricane is going to demolish our house than sit with our eyes glued to the TV screen, wondering if our house is going to be demolished and if it's going to be there the next day, like we'd rather know. And so that's like the biggest thing with being injured. And I think what athletes can do is anything they can do to backfill that uncertainty with certainty is going to help ease that period of being injured. So you know, create a daily tracker or a weekly tracker of, okay, I'm going to try by the end of this week to walk without crutches. Like that's my goal for this week. I'm going to take the baby steps necessary to try and get there or, okay, I have three PT sessions scheduled this week. I'm going to put it down on this piece of paper. Every single one I go to, I'm going to give the check mark and move on to the next one. Or, you know, I'm going to set up a weekly call with either my coach or a trusted teammate or someone else just to go over my progress and have someone root for me and hold me accountable and feel that sense of progress and certainty as I'm moving through this. Um, So yeah, anything that can help add some certainty to your life, I think that's the biggest thing because the uncertainty is crippling. The next clip comes from the episode that we did with JT Barnett, who is a former pro hockey player and entrepreneur. And he speaks about some of the connection between, you know, the mental things you go through and how it does affect you physically and chemically. It is, it is so overlooked and like just the way that like, you know, your body becomes so used to things when you repeat them, it's the same way as like your body used adjusting to pain or like adjusting to like fear is like trying to push away something so that you can still perform in the way that you that you ideally want to. So like the routine of going through a game and going through travel for that and amping yourself up and then having to amp yourself or, you know, deregulate and like mm-hmm. bring yourself back down after a game is something that like doesn't really translate well into regular life, <laughs> maybe in like business, you know, maybe in a little bit of business environments, but when you're just living everyday life, it's not that kind of battle uh, that is like a you know a big game is so if you try to take that same energy that you do into like a big game into like a normal conversation with somebody it's not going to turn out the way that you want it to or the way that it that you know a healthy conversation would be so so for me a lot of like the training that I do with like my wellness of like sauna ice bath 
whether I'm, well, I'm actually working out like with weights, yoga, even like meditation or breath work, like all of those things are just reworking like the way that my body adapts to stress and the way that my body works myself out of it. Um, and that's like a major, major like shift in just the way that I feel and the way that I navigate things. Because before I'm so used to getting ramped up that like, I wouldn't ramp myself down because I didn't need to, like I needed to stay up for so long to play this whole game. Mm -hmm. And then after, and then now in real life, it's like, okay, maybe there's like an, a stressful, a stressful thing that happens here and there, but like, you gotta be, you gotta have more flexibility in your day-to-day -day life of like going up and then being like, okay, that moment's passed. Like now let me chill out and like come back to the next task that I have to do in the day. And so all of the like training that I do, the sauna and all the stuff I just listed is all helping me do that. Now you're going to hear from Mikey Taylor, who is a former pro skateboarder and entrepreneur. And he talks about some of the things that he went through with his identity, leaving pro skateboarding and moving into another stage of his life. I had to like uh, really start being comfortable with who I was. And uh, it brought out a lot of challenges and insecurities I had that I wasn't aware of. And then once I like became whole again, I was actually able to step out and in my view, then make strides towards being successful in every aspect of my life instead of just the career element. Next, we have world adventurer Ray Zahab talking about getting out of a negative mindset. In life, slipping into a negative stream is like a warm sleeping bag in the Arctic. It's just easy to get into and you don't want to get out. Once mm -hmm. you're in that negative space, it's very hard to get out. Along with, with my unhealthy lifestyle, I was a very unhappy person, like genuinely unhappy. Like, you know, you, you wake up and it's a gray cloudy day outside. So you assume it's going to rain. Now mm -hmm. I wake up, if it's cloudy out, I'm thinking I don't have to worry about getting a sunburn or something. You know what I mean? Like you have a, you have a tinge to how you look at things. So I think you just sort of get there. It's not like one day you just say, I'm going to just be negative all the time. You just kind of yeah. get there. And then that builds on, on, on itself. So then you have to work at being happy. Up next, we have trainer and athlete traps who talks about hitting rock bottom. I really, I had to find myself when I lost myself and it wasn't, it wasn't until I lost myself when I was at rock bottom. Once you're at rock bottom, there's no place to go, but up. If you're right. still falling, if you're still falling, still falling, you haven't hit rock bottom yet. Trust me, you got more in you than you think. But once you hit that rock bottom, when you feel like you have nothing left, nothing, no more inside of you, then you, you get up and you can go nowhere but up. Up next, we have Olympian sprinter Manio Mitchell talking about comparison. With social media and everything being in, in the limelight, you you look at others pe other people's success and you judge off of that. You have to you like it's everything's individualized. No matter if it's a team sport or or whatever you're doing, it, it's solely based on you. And the way I recover may not be the way that you recover or someone else recovers. So you can't judge your your timeline off of someone else. You just have to do everything that you can to solidify your success. That's what I try to tell people as well. Now, to me, self-awareness is such an important piece to the mental health puzzle, being able to identify some of the things that you're going through. I think that's so important. And self-awareness also helps with interpersonal awareness. So in this clip, we hear from Jay Tuff once again, and he talks about this piece. I think, I think it goes back to step one is how aware are you that they're even happening in the first place? And I think that that's, 
I, I would say that self-awareness is probably, you know, of all of the mental skills out there that people get so excited about, I would say that self-awareness is probably the most underrated quality that a person can have because it's the, it's the old cliche. You can't, you can't fix a problem unless you recognize that there is one. Well, you can't, you can't stop allowing the emotions to impact what you do or what you don't do unless you can recognize that they exist in the first place. And that and unless you can put, you know, a name to what the emotions are. And and really what what happens then is, you know, the great example is, have you ever met somebody two examples of people who get really angry? Okay. We've all met that person who gets really, really angry. And they start taking a lot of actions out of that anger. Maybe they start yelling or they start, you know, throwing stuff or they, you know, whatever it is. Like there's, it's just clear, or, or you can see that like they're just in their own head and they're completely shut down and reserved because they're incredibly angry. Compare and contrast that to somebody, maybe a, fa- a parent, right? Who kiddo messed up. And the parent says, instead of just yelling and throwing a tan- tantrum, the parents identifies and says, you know what, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty upset right now, but here's what we need to be able to do. In that, in that example, one person identified what it is that they were feeling, the other person never did. And what happens when we're able to identify emotions, when we're able to say, you know what, I'm, I'm actually pretty embarrassed right now, or I'm actually pretty frustrated right now. What we do is in psychology, we call that creating space. If you can create space between yourself and the emotion, and you can recognize it for what it is, it's actually far more likely that that you're going to be able to stop yourself from taking an action due to that emotion. But that all starts with, can you become aware? So one of the things, one of the very basic exercises that I'll do with an athlete when we're, when we're doing this is I'll have them create three columns on a sheet of paper and I'll say, okay, write down the situation. What was the situation? What was again, the literal word for word thought in their head? Because again, while thoughts aren't necessarily important, we can use thoughts. You know, if we have this, have the same dominant thought over and over again, generally that's going to lead to the same emotion. So it can kind of be this sort of radar system. So column one is situation. Column two is what was the literal word for word thought. And then the most important column is what emotion or couple of emotions underpin that thought. And I'll actually do this with athletes and I'll have them write down 20 situations or, you know, multiple thoughts for one situation. So we'll get 20 to 25 thoughts on a sheet of paper and then they'll identify emotions. Now, generally the thoughts are all going to be different. Okay, the thoughts are all going to be you can have 25 different thoughts on a sheet of paper. But then if you go over to the emotion column, you'll start to recognize that it's really two or three emotions that are popping up. It's like, oh, well, there we go. That's a great way to be able to recognize, wow, fear is really popping up here. I'm, I'm making I'm, I'm having a lot of thoughts or I'm making a lot of decisions out of fear or shame is popping up a lot here or maybe even it's anger. You know, anger is really driving a lot of my behavior. Well, now. Now become once we're able to do that, now it becomes a matter of, okay, how do we move ourselves to a place of probably the scariest word in the human language is acceptance? How do we move ourselves to a place where we can accept the fact that we feel a certain way? Because the majority of people that really struggle with their emotions, they're trying to change, ignore, or fight how they feel. Okay, so it's, you know, changing how they feel, they're trying to tell themselves to just be positive, right? You just, you just blew the game in the last second. 
you know, you get off the ice and, and grandma comes up and tells you, you know, just be positive, Timmy, just be positive. No, no, grandma, I'm not going to be positive. I'm, I'm upset. I'm allowed to be upset. It's not authentic, right? When we try and change or convince ourselves that we feel something other than what we feel, it doesn't necessarily work. Other people try and ignore how they feel. We try and ignore our emotions and you know, that's kind of the, you know, don't think of a little blue, little blue bunny rabbit, right? If any listener listening to this podcast closes their eyes and I tell them under no circumstances are you to think about a little blue bunny rabbit, every single person's thinking about a little blue bunny rabbit. The, it's called the ironic effect, right? The brain speaks in images. So if you're sitting there trying to tell yourself, just, just ignore, just don't be angry. Well, it's not going to work either, right? Because now your brain is just, you're angry and that because you are. Um, and then the last thing that we do is we try and fight. We try and fight how we feel or we try and, you know, we try and fight in a variety of different forms, the the, the thing or the individual that made us feel how it is that we feel. We fight them with words. We fight them, you know, hopefully not with actions, but, you know, we, we, we try and change, ignore, fight how we feel. And that just really leads to the emotions grabbing onto us that much more when in fact, and, and I guess really the, the underlying belief there, the underlying mindset there around emotions is a lot of people operate under the assumption that in order for me to do what I need to be able to do or be the person that I need to be able to be in this situation, I need to be without this emotion. I need to find a way to get rid of it. And there's no rule in the rule book of the world that says that that's true. Okay. There's, we, we do things all the time we're able to take actions all the time if we choose to, in spite of how we feel. And that's really where the secret is. So can we recognize the emotions? Can we create enough space and accept and just allow the emotion to be? Because generally what I tell people is, listen, if you want to feel something else, just wait 10 minutes, right? That's how emotions work. If you allow them to pass, they will pass. But if you take actions or if you try and combat the emotion, well, then now the emotions got you right now. Now it's going to, it's going to grab onto you and it's going to dictate how you think, what you do. So again, we want to be able to raise our awareness. We want to be able to create some space. We want to move ourselves to a place of acceptance. And then the, the last key is, can we find a way or find a path to a more productive action in the face of that emotion? So, you know, you're at the starting gate about to do a run. Um, there's some fear that pops up and maybe that fear in the past would dictate, you know, I'm just spitballing here, but maybe that fear in the past would cause you to start, it would, it would dictate your thinking and it would cause you to, you know, start to, you know, become more future focused in your thinking in terms of, I hope I don't mess up here. I wonder what people are going to think. I really need this score, yada, yada. Well, that all those things are that all that is very unproductive. Whereas let's say that you're on the starting gate and you feel some fear and you recognize, oh, that's that thing. That's that thing of fear that tends to pop up here. Instead of doing all those old actions that I did because I was afraid, what's the most productive action that I can take in the face of that fear? And generally that would be maybe take a deep, calming, centering breath, get your mind back in the moment and focus on executing your plan. That would be a fundamentally more productive action to take. It just takes practice. It just takes a lot of work and a lot of repetition. But, you know, really what we need to be able to do is we need to be able to position ourselves consistently. We need to be able to position our mind and our body consistently to be able to put it in a place where it can succeed. That's not necessarily, that's almost never going to happen if we allow our emotions to determine the actions that we take versus if we allow ourselves to take those actions. 
Now we're going to hear from Olympic and pro skateboarder Annie Guglia on her mental health journey leading up to Tokyo 2021. Well, one thing that like for me, the source of like everything that was hard because I've never really thought about mental health until the Olympics, to be honest, like I, yeah, in like personal life, like, okay, breakups and like stuff that people experience in life. But like, I never really worked on my mental health until the Olympics. And like, I didn't even know what mental toughness was. (laughs) And so um, what happened is like, I think like when COVID hit, it became really hard. Like I was stressed out before because, because it's stressful, but like, it wasn't like my whole life, like the way I paid my rent and like everything. So, and when COVID hit with isolation and everything, like it, I, I think I saw one of your TikToks where it said like you felt like you were falling out of love with snowboarding Mm. or something like that. And that like sentence, I was like, this is what's happening. Like, this Mm. is what I'm feeling like. And skateboarding has been like the really like the glue that sticks all the layers of my life together since I was like 10. Like, that's the way I met all my friends, like in school, outside of school. That's why I traveled. Like, it's just like so much in my life that's why people say it's, it's a lifestyle because that's what it is but like and then with the olympics like it just became so stressful that i didn't even enjoy it anymore like when i said at the beginning like i was skateboarding or skateboarding like i was like training or skating for fun but even when i was skating for fun like i was barely getting like playful with skating anymore it was just like I felt like if I skated for fun, it was like, it's useless. Mm. Like I need to be training for it to be like useful because it's my job, because that's what I do. And that's, and it's hard. Like I knew that it didn't make sense, but that's still how I felt. Yeah. And, um, and anyways, for me, that was like the biggest, that's how I realized that there was a problem with it. (laughs) Yeah. And, uh, I don't even know, like, it just became so hard that like at a certain point I kind of wanted to quit because I was like, that's not what skateboarding is to me. Like, I don't want it to become, because I remember when uh, in 2018, I went to Tokyo with a bunch of athletes from other sports, like from swimming, taekwondo, like, um, Oh, archery. Yeah. Archery. Like a bunch <laughs> of random sport. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm just going <laughs> to, uh, and anyways, I lo- like fencing, like a lot of people. Oh yeah. And they, and I, I brought my board to Tokyo for like a week. And people were like, you brought your board? Like, I'm so happy I have a week off oh, my board. And wow. I was like, what do you mean a week off your sport? Like, hmm? like you know what I mean? Like, that's how I, I was like, huh? No, I want to be skating like everywhere because that's what I do. Yeah. And like, if I had to go back, I would not. No, that's not true. I would have brought my board. <laughs> but, <laughs> but like, I would feel really different. And that like... I don't know that aspect to me was really hard and I almost that's what I was gonna say like in January of this year I was like I'm I want to quit like I told my parents I was like I'm not there's no point because for me I was always saying like I want to appreciate the whole process Mm -hmm. of anything like like happiness is a journey not a destination like that was like a big like to me that makes a lot of sense but like at that point the Olympic process was so not fun with COVID especially so yeah. I was like, I'm not even enjoying the process. And now they were like talking about like, not even had, like my parents can't come to the Olympics. Like 
you're going to be in that bubble. You can't get out of your hotel room. You're, you get there two days in, or five days before you leave two days after. I was like, the, so the process is not fun. And then even the like fun thing that you're supposed to be doing at the end is not even going to probably not even going to be fun. So I was like, why am I even putting my body and my head and like through all of this for like, for what? Yeah. <laughs> but, um, I was seeing like a mental um, a sports psychologist and we like reframed it. And I remember one time I was in my gym here and I was looking around and I like started crying because I was like, I saw, because I was like, I felt so overwhelmed. And then I saw the trophies, like I have like national championship trophies and like stuff like that. And I, but then like I, instead of looking at the trophy, I was like looking at what happened that day, like for each of them. I was like, and, I was like, that was so much fun. Why am I like just thinking about the stressful stuff? Like, yeah, it was a stressful contest, but like my parents came and like my grandmother like surprised me and came mm. and my agent was there and like my girlfriend at the time was there. And like, I don't know, I just like started like seeing the positive of all these events. And then I went back to all the way, like why I started skating and how I felt when I was like learning tricks as a kid. And I was looking at like photos of me when I was young skating and like I think like reframing the purpose of like what skateboarding is to me like really not like today uh, it's my job but like what skateboarding is to me like at, on a bigger level and that's how like now I'm like no nah, I'm good and, and the last competitions like I actually was having so much fun like even if I didn't qualify and that's why I think I was able like it wasn't the end of the world that I didn't qualify I think because I was like you know what, like, I'm actually enjoying myself right now at these competitions. Like, if I don't make it, I don't make it. But, like, at least I I, I had that realization before it was too late, I think. Yeah. And I was like, no, I'm good. Like, I'm having fun. And lastly, we're going to hear from Reagan Rust again. And this talks about, you know, kind of dealing with criticism and negativity, because I think that is a big part of mental health. You know, obviously, we're not going to feel great about ourselves when we hear some of these things or see some of these things, especially online. And so here's some of her advice for that. This is like counterintuitive, but like, get offline and like, talk to your friends, like the people that actually care about you would never say those things that other people are saying. And I think it's like a good realization to know that. The ones that are saying that stuff about you actually just feel bad about themselves. That's the only reason that they would want to bring someone else down. Like nobody just throws out negativity unless they're feeling already negative. And so like, I think we talked about this off on like Instagram or something, just wish them well and then go on your merry way. Um, but yeah, just like even setting limits for yourself of how much time you can be on that will drastically increase your mental health. Um, and I know a lot of people will just start blocking people that say that stuff. And hey, if you block them, they can't get to you. And so that'll definitely help too. We've gotten to the end of the different clips that I wanted to feature. I really hope that you enjoyed it, whatever you were looking for, whether it was awareness, education, um, just to know that you're not alone or to just to learn something new. I hope that this has really helped. Let me know uh, on Instagram at the All In Project or at Natalie Allport what you would like to hear next, who you would like to hear from next, and if you enjoyed this episode as well as if you enjoy some of these composition episodes. 
I really appreciate everyone's support on the podcast. It's so great building out this community. A lot of work goes into these episodes, and I hope you have a great week. If you're struggling right now, know that you are not alone. It's okay not to be okay. I know these are just such cliche statements, but it really is true, um, and that there are resources out there that that can help and I'll make sure to put some resources in the show notes and it is not mentally weak to reach out for help actually it's mentally tough it's really strong to take that step forward and be open and vulnerable and go and seek help so with that I'm gonna say goodbye and catch you on the next one